Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Best life, best life, invest in all, reinvent yourself. For you know it, your essence is to do something free. Your will, your way. Well, let's cheers each other. It's only water, but yeah, it is cheers. only midday. Cheers, Lee. Good man. So the first thing I want to ask you is, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? You want my real age? Or real my, age. Not your, not my, your rock and roll stage age. My rock age. and roll stage age is pretty much the same thing. I, I don't lie. I, I Even on stage, I'll, I'll make fun of the audience. I'll go, I'm 53, and look at you people. You're standing there still, you know? Well, that's what I was amazed by, is you're in exceptional shape. <laughs> Um, and is that purely down to what you do for a living and what you do every night on stage? Does that demand a certain level of fitness? And by doing it every night, does that keep you lean, mean, fit? Yeah, it's the way it's the way we grew up watching bands. We saw, you know, like other bands in the in the punk scene that we watch, like a band like Murphy's Law or especially the Bad Brains, high energy, nonstop, and that's the only way we know how to play. Yeah, and. I'm not like my brother, the guitar player, Pete. He works out every day He's on tour, off tour. He just works out like a machine. When I get off tour, stop moving. I just become like a statue and laying, you know. Do you then get the kind of at home, off tour? Oh, gut? yeah. yeah. And, it's, and you know, and that is like, Shit, so... tour's coming up. Got to get back in shape. Exactly. And it's too hard <laughs> to get rid of. And then you're on stage sucking it in. And then at one second, you let it out so you could actually take a deep breath. That's when they take a picture. Of course. Yeah. And then <laughs> yeah, that's the one that goes online. We joke around that, uh, you know, that story, uh, uh, the story of Dorian Gray, the of painting. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're saying it was kind of like that. The second we finish our last show and we say you know this is it good night thank you we're gonna walk off stage and age About like a hundred years straight away <sighs> um do you think will you foresee yourselves doing it until you can physically do it no longer it's because hardcore is a excuse the pun but it's a it, very hardcore way to make a living in that oh, it ain't it no fucking yeah. ballpark no no we're not like sitting up you're there not there like Aerosmith and fucking five-star hotels and oh, traveling in luxury no. like even the even the <laughs> even the behind the scenes stuff is obviously grueling and hard work yeah. and well, people, you know, they're all like, your friends think that it's that easy. Even we had it, we have a tour bus. It's still grueling, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, of course. We're not staying in hotels with the tour bus. We all shower in one little dirty shower, not at the same time all the time. Of course. But, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know and it, it, it is, it's grueling and, and it's a young man's game. And, and as far as keep going, we love to. There's, it's such back and forth. Sometimes trying to set tours up. You try to get with other bands, but no, they want to take the young hip band out. They yeah. go, oh, we love you. We love you. Like bands that are bigger than us, they love us, but 
they want a smart move to keep the young kids coming to their shows, they're going to take out a younger band, you know? And uh, it's very generational hardcore, especially in the States. There's a whole generation now. I think up till three years ago, we kept bringing in young kids. But three years ago, started to taper off, taper off. And now, man, they have their whole new generation, the whole uh, turnstile and all that uh, generation, which is weird because we've played with turnstile. We've had tours with them and we've, you know, get along, but their fans. And just they obviously stop. look up to and admire and name check bands like yourselves. Yeah. But do their fans necessarily know of. The agnostic fronts, the sick of it all, the mad boys. That they might know of you, but they don't give a crap about you. You know, I mean, is that we, the way you find it? Yeah, yeah, personally, yeah. I mean, there's there's might be a small faction of them that'll still watch you. You know, and I understand it. You know, it's people. You know, you look up as a guy's your dad's age up there yelling at you. You know, <laughs> but you know the thing with us is, and I'm not putting down other older bands, but like you said, we still move. I think we're better than we were when we were younger. You know, we're more confident with ourselves. We know what we like to do and, you know, we just, that's what we do. It's interesting because I go on a lot of tours with ska punk and punk rock bands more so than hardcore. And there's not many of those dudes that keep in shape. They almost (laughs) embrace the kind of, you know, lethargic, slightly overweight, and it kind of works for them. But when you do have, as you say, like a high energy physical show, there really is nothing more upsetting from a fan's point of view is there than oh man you can sort of see the that shine's gone a little yeah, bit and yeah. so it's a true testament to you guys as oh, as a live band man like it's quite the thing to behold every single time and it never shows any signs of love. every up. time we do a tour like uh two years ago we did the second to last warp tour and uh, over the summer and it was the first time we were back in 10 years or 20 or whatever it was and, uh, was that the year when it was like, let's get the old school kind of yeah, lineup? And we had flavor a, back. it was like uh, adolescents were on it, suicide yep. machines were on the same stage as us, and all that. But it, it was people would come up to you and say, like, man, you guys give 110% more than these young bands. I'm going, yeah, but those young bands are playing to 5,000 people compared to the 50 to 500 that we play every night. Yeah. You know? But it was funny moments. I guess you know? that's a real struggle, right? And a real grueling, yeah. hardcore, like it ain't yeah. like boot camp. There were some nights where we would go on uh, next to each other and say, like the the hot one of the hot bands was the band Attila, which I had I never heard of. The super and, offensive, quote unquote, band. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know, it's all a gimmick. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I met the singer, and he he was actually a all right guy, you know, but uh, you know, we would play. We were up on our our side of stage. We were going on right before him. And there was maybe 500 people. There were 5,000 people just standing waiting for these guys. And they were watching us. And they would bob their heads. And I'd be like, it's all right. You can you can enjoy us too. You know, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it yeah. was just weird. They wouldn't, you know, because we weren't presented to them whatever way, you know. Do you find that um, kind of hipster culture and gentrification has seeped into the hardcore scene as much as it has with you know, let's say cities like London and New York, obviously, Mm -hmm. and I'd like to talk to you about that in a bit as well. But I certainly feel like it's become almost like a fashion trend to be into hardcore. And there's that certain look that the newer generation have. Yeah, and it's done it. It's gone through, like, I remember in uh, about five years ago or maybe a little little more, uh, my friend goes, you know, the hipster area in Brooklyn, uh, Williamsburg, he's like, oh, you got to come to the show. I'm like, so went to this tiny little bar show and these guys get up and they look like they were an emo band, like sweater vests, and and they get up and they played grindcore, and the whole place went crazy. I'm like, what the hell is this? And that was a trend for a good three or four years, and all of a sudden it's back to like, oh, you know, hardcore and whatever. But vests and caps and yeah, yeah. And now it's like, uh, you know, um, it's such. There's no center in New York anymore. There's no CBGBs, so. It's splinter, and you have all these weird little cliques and groups, but I think it's kind of cool. Uh, the, the singer Murphy's Law introduced me to this whole scene. He goes, yeah, you got to come to this show. And it was hardcore bands, like, you know, old school, you know, punk hardcore, and then, you know, the more modern style. And I, I never heard of these bands. Some of these bands have been going for 10 years, but they just play Brooklyn. Right. That's their shit. Because no they idea. can almost make a living off just that, and that's fine. I guess, yeah. You know, and they run their beard parlor, whatever the of hell course. they run. Of yeah. <laughs> When's that trend going to disappear? <laughs> <laughs> it's you been know, hanging the, on in there for yeah, a while yeah. now, hasn't it? Like, Jesus Everybody Christ. wants to be a lumberjack looking guy. You know? <laughs> um, so tell me about New York for you. Were you young enough or old enough? Were you of the right age to catch that first wave 
of Ramones, television, Talking Heads, or was that just before that your time? That was just before my time, but growing up in Queens, I used to see Didi Ramone all the time in my neighborhood. I didn't know who he was at first, and then, you know, oh, wow, that's the Ramones, you know? And, you know, when we were punks, we were snotty little punks, we'd see Didi Ramone walking down, heading to the subway, and we'd be across the street, and we'd yell, Didi, you suck! And we'd all hide behind cars, because we were little punks, you know? Yeah. That's what you did. You loved them, but you fucking hated them, you know? But, uh... I never got to see them in CBGBs. I saw them. They played for free in Queens a couple of times, and we all went to the park, and it was amazing, you know? Uh, but my era was a uh, couple of years later with the Reagan Youth, and, and that was the first ones, you know, go see them in Queens. And then we ventured to CBGBs, and it was our big bands were Agnostic Front, Murphy's Law, and, and the Crow Mags a little later, you know? And the city itself then, and I've, I've talked about this a few times on my podcast uh, because I just love it. I've still never even been to New York, which is a crime and I need oh. to go. But I'm just fascinated with how gritty and raw and I guess sketchy and dangerous, but also yeah. artistic community led it was um, for such a long time before obviously the money came in yeah. and rent prices went up. Well, like... Uh... I can't remember his name. I only know him by his first name. This guy, Jesse, he was in Degeneration, all that. and Jesse he, Mallon. Yes. He's been on Jesse the show. Mallon. Yeah, I love Jesse. Oh. Yeah. He's like the mayor of the Lower East Side. He is. Yeah. And it's cool because you read his story. Like, I read an interview with him, and he was like, he was living in Queens where I grew up. And he, he back then, he just looked up in the Village Voice and found an apartment for like 300 bucks because nobody wanted to live on the Lower East Side. He moved from Astoria, Queens to the Lower East Side. And I remember the first few times going to CB's, we went to CB's, and everybody's like, Okay, it's cool, you know, yeah, you go to St. Mark's, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But if you venture into the, the what they called Alphabet City, when the avenues went from numbers to letters, you know, Avenue A, C, A, B, C, and D, you, the further you went in, the worse it got. And that's where a lot of my friends who, like, moved from wherever, they're like, oh, I found a cheap apartment. Oh, where is it? It's Avenue D and First. I'm like, you, you better be careful. You're a white boy moving into that neighborhood, you know? You know and I, even up to... God, 10 years ago, a friend of mine, I had given him a demo of uh, of the new record. This is going maybe more than 10 years because he had a Discman. So right, I remember, yeah, like yeah, in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. And he was uh, walking home one night and like three doors away from his apartment building, he got mugged and the guy was like, give me, the, give me the, you know, your Discman. And he was like, can I just take the disc out, please? And they, they gave him the disc and took us. You're not going to like it anyway. <laughs> yeah, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't and care they were going to sell it. In, the in, city uh, itself was basically like on fire, wasn't it? There was a point when it was kind of like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Here's a good story that lets you know, as right before it changed, me, uh, my brother Pete, and we, we had to be like 13. He was 13. I was 14. We had a, my best friend, Tom, at the time. And we went down, we were going to St. Mark's. There was this a store called The Pit, and they sold, like, you know, skull rings and all this biker shit. And uh, we used to go to Bleaker Bob's Records because they had all these cool stuff. They had a poster of a festival that was here in England. with It was Motorhead with special guest Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. You know, and we were like, wow, Ozzy opened up for Motorhead. This is fucking great. So anyway, we go down to St. Mark's, and we're walking to the store. I'm wearing a denim vest with Black Sabbath Volume 4 that I painted on the back. My brother had... Uh, I don't know if he had Motorhead or Venom on the back of his jacket. Not Venom, because it was before Venom exploded. But it was he had a Motorhead. And my other friend just had some kind of other painting. So we were walking down the street. And we walked past this cafe. And these three Hell's Angels sitting there. And we just stroll by. Little kids. Yay! And we go into this store. And we're looking at the skull. And all of a sudden, the Hell's Angels walk. And they go, give us your colors. And we go, colors? What colors? And they were like, your fucking jackets. And I was like... It's a Black Sabbath jacket. They go, no, you don't walk through our neighborhood with your colors on. And we were like, it's not gang shit. It's fucking music. That's what it was like. We were little kids. They didn't give a shit. They were like, give me your shit. Fuck you. And they told the store owner, fuck you too. We don't like a lot of shit you got in here. You better take this, this, and this out of your window. And he was like, yes, sir. It was crazy. You know? Like the Warriors. Like yeah. it really was like yeah. that. <laughs> and I was, you know, I'm like fucking 14, ready to piss my pants. This fucking giant biker is yelling at me. And I'm like, it's just a Black Sabbath vest. And they must I don't care, kid. Take it yeah, off. Hand it over and get out of town. high or whatever because he just stared at me. He cut up and then he stared at the jacket and then you think he realized it was just Black Sabbath, but he took it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's too late to back down now. <laughs> I look like an idiot. Yeah. How was that show? Did you make it there in one piece? Uh, no, we went home. <laughs> we were like, we're out. Yeah, fuck this. <laughs> so early on for you then, was it more rock and roll heavy metal? That was kind of the, the music that sent you on the path yeah. to... It was always the more high energy stuff. Like... Like if we listen to uh, 
my older brothers listen to Deep Purple and shit like that. So, but I always like the more high energy Deep Purple songs. Like when they came out with Burn, I was like, what, this is fucking great. Speed you know? King and stuff yeah, like Speed that. Yeah, King. yeah. And uh, then Rainbow and it was Kill the King and, you know, all the high energy shit. And, then, you know, of course, Sabbath and this and that. But then we got, we found Motorhead and that was like oh, an awakening. And then when I went to high school, that's when I met Armand, our drummer. And it's funny, the story is I went to summer school because I failed a class or whatever. So was I had that because you were cutting out of class and yes. getting up to no good? <laughs> yeah. We just cut out of class. We didn't give a shit. You know. So I had to go to the summer school, and it was in Jamaica, Queens. Uh, so I lived in Flushing, and Jamaica, Queens is an all-black neighborhood. So I had to go to school there. So here I am, this white kid, you know, denim vest, bullet belt, long hair, and I'm sitting at the bus stop. And, you know, everybody's cool. Everybody in the neighborhood's cool. We're all talking, hanging out. And I see this kid riding up the street, all black bicycle, like old school, like dirty ass broken bicycle, long ass hair past his fucking, you know, up to his butt and a bullet belt. Now, who the fuck is that? And he just rides by me. Never. Then a year later, uh, beginning of the school year, I'm walking down the hallway. Here's that fucking kid wearing a motorhead shirt. It was Armand. And that's how we all met, you know. In so high school, you, you, we you bonded were, through the Motorhead. Because back then, Love nobody it. liked Motorhead. Metallica had just uh, came out, you know? Like, like, they just came to the East Coast, and they stayed at our friend's house while they recorded their first album. So, you know, we we were, like, on the ground level of, you know, knowing who Metallica was. What, so you were getting a I taste never to met kill them Metallica. all early, were you? No, no, I didn't get to meet them because they were, like, you know, my friend was all like, oh, you don't want to bother. Yeah, yeah, people. yeah, yeah. But, you know, we were, like, when they came to New York to, like, to play with Venom, we were there, you know, we were the, like, and we were the only like four guys in the front row, like going crazy. And I remember Cliff Burton looking at the audience and going, like, I don't know what you people do in New York, but it's in San Francisco. We bang our heads and, you know, fucking scream. And because the audience was, they didn't know who Metallica was. You know? So they just stood there, blank expression, yeah, static. Like, Holy shit. And, and I think on? you think people who went to the sold out Venom show would be like taken by Metallica's speed and, and power, you know? Yeah, so that's how I met Arma. I mean, we were dirt, we were dirt asses because you know you you gravitated towards each other. You know, it was like <laughs> well, because I guess at that point in time, alternative was um you know a word that still very much meant something, and you were like the scumbag outcast if you yeah. were into punk or metal. Like. Yeah, and what I found interesting though is because we were into metal, but we did like a lot of we started liking getting into punk at the same time. Uh, Again, through my older, one of my older brothers, he brought a, home a Plasmatics record. Yeah, and we yeah, had yeah. known of the Ramones and all that, but when we heard the Plasmatics, we were like, holy shit. And then, you know, meeting Armine and found out he had seen the Plasmatics. He saw the famous show where she drove the car into the East River, and it was amazing. We were like, oh my God, this is awesome. But uh, it, a lot of the other kids, the more, uh, uh, like every kid that was, in like the excelled classes, the smarter kids, they were into punk. They were into new wave at the time, you know. Talking so heads we all, and yeah, and, and yeah. so we would all, you know, hang out together. Were the shows those sort of famous matinee Sunday hardcore shows um, that you would have started going to around? Would that have been around this point in time, or a tiny bit later? They were. There was some. Uh, and were they, they like were, all age shows? Or was it strictly over eighteen? It was over 16. sixteen. It was over sixteen. They, they, they'd say they were all ages, but it was sixteen and up. Um, I started going, my first one, God, was 80, either early 85 or late 84. And I remember uh, it was Corrosion Conformity because I, I had gotten into hardcore, you know, segueing from plasmatic Sex Pistols into the Exploited and Discharge. And we were really into the English stuff when we had started going to high school. And we met Armand and he was like, we were talking, he was like, you know, there's a whole scene here in New York. We're like, no. And he played us, uh, well, first he played us Negative Approach from Detroit. And then he played us the Agnostic Front, and we were like, what the hell is it? You know. And then Agnostic Front's Victim and Pain came out in 84, and that was it. Now, I, I got that record, and I was like, holy shit. You know, it's a full album that only lasts 15 minutes, you know? and it's so powerful because it had the punkness of GBH, but it had this own New York sound. It sounded like where we would go to hang out. You know? and, uh, so that was the record, really, which changed oh, the game, yeah. and was that for a well, lot of people? For New York, yeah, yeah. put New York on the map. It 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 gave them such a uh, uh, you know a, a nationwide exposure, and even even negative though, because Maximum Rock and Roll, the big fanzine out then, had uh, you know from California, they would say that oh they're not. Hold on, there's a cleaner. There's a cleaner that's coming in, Lou. <laughs> how you doing? You're right. Yeah, good. How are you? We're good. Sorry, that Uber took ages. That's all good. 
Have a seat. Yeah, very well. Um, where were we? Go on. Um, Agnostic, oh, Agnostic Front, Victim Front. of Pain. Yeah, yeah. And, and that album uh, got so much shit because of the cover. You know, it had a, a, it was a, it was a picture of a, uh, from World War II of a, the Nazis were shooting some Jewish guy in the head to fall into the mass grave. And of course, Maximum Rock and Roll picked up, oh, they're skinheads from New York. Yeah, and they called them Nazis. They were half, you know, the skinhead scene in New York was, 80% black and Hispanic. Yeah. You know, and they were calling everybody Nazis. So it was just weird. But that album and that band was the, my turn. Like, I went to COC, the Corrosion Conformity show, and I got a flyer and it said, uh, next, the next show was, uh, next weekend was Agnostic Front returning home from tour. So I went to the show. We were like, oh, I love Victim and Pain. I can't. So we went to the show. We were the only guys with hair in the place. I think everybody shaved Everyone their Everyone else is complete. I skin, think they right? just shaved their heads just as in honor of Agnostic Front coming back. Except for, I think, Tommy Victor from Prong was the sound yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. So he still had his long Tommy's hair. been on the show as well. He had I some great stories Tommy, from that time. Man. Yeah. So that was the show because we were standing in the crowd. And again, me and my, my denim jacket with motorhead on the back. And this guy comes up and he goes, oh, you like Agnostic Front? And I was like, yeah, I love Agnostic Front. Victim of Pain is like my favorite album. I just got it, you know, whatever, six months ago. And he's like, oh, cool. It was Vinny Stigma. Amazing. And he just walked up on stage. And that's when it hit me because I was like, man, I love Black Sabbath. And I've been to see him at the Garden. And, you know, I would never meet Tony Ioni and talk to him. And then he walks up on stage. Just, this is where I want to be. And it, that was just it. You know? um, Vinny's such a character, isn't he? Like... <laughs> He really is yeah. one of the funniest dudes. Um, I've never personally met him, but you see him in interviews and the stories that you hear. And I guess him and Roger are almost like the yin and the yang, aren't they? <laughs> it is. Like, I mean, if complete you, polar opposites. They you have, wouldn't they like, put them together in life, perhaps? Yeah. But. And some of the stories, I mean, they did a docu- the documentary is out. The Godfather's it's really hardcore, good. Yeah. And you'll see the and you'll see Vinny. He's he is like an old school New York neighborhood guy. Yeah, you walk through there and everybody knows you. It's it's the way I guess you know whatever. If you live in a, a tight knit neighborhood, uh, it's like when my brother lived uh, on the Lower East Side. Even to this day, when he comes back, he moved to Florida. He like retired or whatever, but not really. But you know, thirty still, years too early. Yeah. <laughs> so when we when he comes back up to like rehearse or to write, and we'll go to his old neighborhood. People walk out, hey, Pete, I haven't seen you in years. What are you doing? How's Florida? They know where he lives. They know, you know, and it's amazing. So that's still, that. that's still there in effect. It hasn't been completely Until, until the rent gets yet. up really high, you know, and then they all get pushed out, you know. I don't know how some of those places survive. There's this little place uh, that was under where Pete, uh, Pete's apartment was. It was a bodega, and, and it's, you know, they did burritos and all the shit. It was great burritos, you know, authentic Mexican, all that shit. You know, not fancy, yeah. real dirt hole, but it had the greatest food. And they're still there. And I don't know how the hell they afford to rent, you know? It's crazy. If you have your <clears throat> lease deal from back in the day, do you think there's certain laws and restrictions that keep the prices lowered or not? Or do you think the food's that good that they can afford to stay? Because <laughs> they're selling Maybe, maybe the burritos are five bucks instead <laughs> yeah, of three yeah, now. Yeah. I'm probably like 10 bucks now. Is barbershop culture still a thing in New York? Because you used to see it a lot in those old movies. That would be the sort of meeting place of a lot of people's Well, now they have uh, communities. I think it's, again, it's moved out to the hipster areas. Like in Manhattan, it's not be- so much. trims it's, instead of yeah. haircuts, yeah. In Manhattan now, it's like they, they, they throw up those places where it says haircuts, five bucks or 10 bucks or whatever. They have the thing that says punk cut, 10 bucks, which means they're just going to shave your fucking head, you know? Uh, but for like barber shops where you hang out. So when I was a kid, my dad used to take us to barber shops on a, on a Sunday or Saturday, and you'd sit there in the chair, all four of us, and like, there'd be a row of people, and you'd all get your hair cut, and they would all all the men talking and stuff, you know. But I, I haven't experienced that, and now you go to salons. Yeah, I know, know right? <laughs> I love all that culture, man, and I feel like the, you know the pace of the world today leaves a lot of things like that behind. And I don't know whether yeah, I'm just yeah. nostalgic for the past, but even <laughs> stupid things like phone boxes, I never use them, obviously, but I still like to see them there. Do you know what I mean? That's it's true. Like, yeah. oh, there's still a time and a place for yeah. that in this world. Thank I God. took a picture of one and uh, sent it to a friend of ours who uh, we were talking to this guy who, who was on roads. He's like 21 in the States. He was just a friend of ours, came out for a couple of shows. And we were talking about, remember being in Europe and having to go to phone booths to make phone calls with a phone card. And we used to have this thing that we would get at uh, Radio Shack and you switch a uh, chip in it and it would make the sound of coins. And we used to put it up to the receiver. Like you'd, you'd call, you go, oh, I have to call home. Operator, I need to call home. Uh, how much is that going to be? They'd be like, oh, it's $2. And you would click the thing. And we got away with it for like a year and a half. And then all of a sudden you would do it. And they'd be like, uh, sir, you're not putting money in. Uh, <laughs> hang up. 
I guess that was probably the hardest thing about touring back in the day before cell phones was keeping in touch with your family back home. Yeah, yeah. And having to sit there with a stack mom, about mom and dad. <laughs> mom and dad would be like, are you guys alive? You haven't called in two weeks? You're like, yeah, we're getting paid 50 bucks a night. <laughs> we're doing all right. Who are some of the early bands that took you guys out? Sepultura you did a tour with back in the day, right? Yeah. Uh, the first big act we went out with, I mean, there was local, like, uh, a New York band, Token Entry, who was big. at the, They were a the huge band in New York at the time. They they gave us a bunch of local shows, which which really helped us. But the biggest band, the first one we ever did is when we finished our first album. Uh, we were on this kind of the same label. It was we were all under the same roof. Uh, Exodus had a, a short East Coast run, and uh, they had this band uh, Annihilator was supposed to be on it, but something happened. They had to drop off at like two weeks notice, and they came in and they said, uh, "Yeah, we need a band. We need a band." And one of our a uh, guy who later became our manager for a little while, he said, why don't you just take uh, Sick of It All out? And they're like, New York hardcore? Sure, all right, we'll try it. You know, California crazy guy. And it worked. It was funny, though. Some nights we'd walk out, and the lights, we were first band on, the lights were dim, and people start cheering, we'd go, Annihilator! And we'd be like, uh, we're not Annihilator. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. You know, I mean, we had a good good run. It was like eight shows. It was a lot of fun. I like bills like last night that still have that mix of hardcore and metal. And yeah. I feel like those two genres should coexist quite seamlessly. Yeah, but, but it then seems like there's, metal, more there's of a, a lot of metal that slides more commercial and they're not going to like my voice. Because yeah, yeah, some yeah. nights, last night I was good, but some nights I sound like I'm just screaming with my balls in a vice and it just like <laughs> it turns into a half noise, you know? <laughs> Are you friends with the LOA guys? You go back with them, Life of Agony. Yeah, I I remember uh, Joey Z handed me their demo, and I was like, "Oh, cool!" You know, and I went home and listened to it. And I was like, when I first heard uh, Mina's voice, uh, I was so Keith, different Keith back then. I was like, "Whoa, what the?" F-? You know, this guy like could sing opera. What the hell is he doing here? And we listened to it, and I was like, "Man, well, yeah, they're gonna change shit," you know. And they actually did. They're a band that I think if they stuck more towards the style of the first album, they would have been way bigger. Because yeah. they opened the doors. You know, people talk, oh, Pantera, this thing. Yeah, Pantera is fucking amazing. But they didn't have that style until, like, Life of Agony had come out. Yeah. You know? I know Phil will say Sheer Terror, which is also Life of Agony's uh, influence. But I, Life of Agony is owed a lot from the, the powerful voice and then clean singing while he can scream, too. They that were, I think, the red. first band on Roadrunner to go platinum as well as something like that, yeah, weren't they? Yeah. So that album shifted like serious units, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's a good album. And what about Pete Steele? Were you friends with him back in the day? That's a guy I'd have loved to have met. I just know, 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 knew him. You know, I didn't, we weren't like buddies, but yeah. I'd see him at, I uh, remember his first band, uh, Carnivore, mm-hmm. playing CBs. And we were like, wow, these guys like Because he was a fucking giant. Yeah. Guy. But back then, he still had long hair, and they'd come out like their Road Warrior outfits with meat hanging off of it and shit. And we were just like, what the fuck is this? But the music was good, you know? And then uh, then he cut his hair, and he hung around a lot, and he, he wrote songs with Agnostic Front for the, uh, uh, was it, the Call, Cause for Alarm album. He wrote a bunch of songs on that. But he was a cool guy, you know? And Typo Negative, were they just, again, one of those very unique bands within that scene? Yeah, and it was funny, because I never went to Brooklyn to see him, but I remember... One of their early shows, it was at some bar in Manhattan. Like it, it was a basement bar. We, we said, "Ah, go see this new, you know, Pete Steele's new band." We went in, and he's standing there with a stand-up bass strapped across him like a regular bass, you know, electric. And he's got it hanging on chains. We're like, "It's fucking crazy!" And then he started playing like the Monsters theme. We're like, <laughs> but I mean, that's what he was into. So, you know, I, I liked, I like a lot of Typo Negative. You know, an incredible band. Just what an <clears throat> amazing voice as well. Oh what yeah, a- yeah distinct weird yeah and then we ended up playing like uh the dynamo festival decade or like years later years later and they, they were the headliner and uh you know again also prong too yeah 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 we had interesting stories of there was a place that we rehearsed at one time at one point in uh in uh soho in new york in, in uh, on green street it was a basement of this snooty apartment building which is weird because it was before everybody complained about noise they didn't oh it's art let them make noise and in that studio, it was in one room was was Prong. Next room was Helmet. Next room was Cro-Mags. The next room was oh, what the fuck was their name? Shit, I forgot who it was. But anyway, and us. And it would be funny because when Bad Brains were in, oh, Bad Brains, yeah, when Bad Brains are in uh, 
practicing we'd be sitting in the hallway like oh shit listen to bad brains it would be like us and the guy from prong and then when we were rehearsing one day we opened the door and there's the drummer and the bass player of helmet going you guys mind if we listen we're like no we don't mind and it was cool because i had all those bands that you know went on to do pretty good things you know that was pretty amazing yeah special times man yeah and how did you feel when the i guess the, the new metal scene hit um did you feel that's a weird time for us i'll bet before that was the grunge thing, yeah. right? And for some reason, when grunge got big, Sick of It All started to take off. We weren't grunge at all. We were just dirty New York hardcore. And we really scratched the surface. And it, especially in Europe, it took off. And in America, uh, we had such a cult following, you know? And From just the reputation of you guys as a live band? I, I guess, you know? I mean, I know New York City was just that. But then when the album came out, we did good. We toured the States and it was good. But... When new metal started to hit, it was funny. Uh, we got this, our manager called us up, and he's like, hey, this guy, so-and-so, he wants you to take his band out, and uh, I'm going to send you the demo, and I got this tape in the mail, and it's corn. I put it on, and I'm sitting there, and, and my manager said, so what do you think? I go, sounds like Nine Inch Nails meets Sepultura. It's not nothing new. That's what I thought. I didn't think it was new, because to me, it was like, oh, you just took two genres you and smashed them together. You had the in your head, yeah. That's my problem. I yeah. fucking ruined myself. I can't listen to a lot of new bands because Without I just like, that sounds column, like a Slayer. Yeah. That sounds like Exodus, you know? But uh, we were like, yeah, you know, we'll take him out. And he said, yeah, but the manager really wants them to go out with a good live band. So, of course, he played to our ego and it made us like, oh, we're a good live band. So, so you took them out on their first big tour? I think it was like they had gone out with Biohazard. What's that? <laughs> Fire alarm. <laughs> really? What the hell's going on? You're shitting me. Maybe it's a drill. I there we go. So. That would have been annoying. We just leave the tape running. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Corn. Out on the road with them. So I think they did like a biohazard tour before that or whatever. And when we met them, they were very apprehensive. We were like, I remember the first show was in Georgia and they were all sitting at the bar eating. And I got my food. And when I said, hey, what's up, guys? There was a, you know, like old, whatever. And then as the tour went on, we became you know friend friendly or whatever. It wasn't like oh I love you, but it was cool. And then you know uh, a few years later, we're doing in '97, we're doing the Warp tour, and we're playing in Philly. And Corn was on Lollapalooza, and we're playing in Philly, and we're going you know having a great show. And according to my eye, I see these two guys with dreads like rocking out on the side stage. I'm like, ah, you know, fucking warped to her dirt ass, come up on stage. <laughs> and I'm walking on stage, and it's monkey in head, and they're like, yo, what's up? And they're hugging me, and I'm like, what the fuck are you guys? I thought you were on Lollapalooza. Go, we had the day off, and we told them we got to come here to see you guys. I was like, really? And then fast forward again a few more years, we're playing some huge festival in Belgium, and we're headlining the second stage, and Korn's the main act, and they had this artist area. And then the security comes, and they go, Corn is coming through to their room. Everybody has to go into your cabins. And we're like, that's some rock star bullshit. You know, we all get in our room and all of a sudden, and we're like, yeah, all right. We open the door and it's all the guys from Corn. Instead of going to their room, they came to say hello to us. And it's really cool that years later, we're talking to them and they were like, yeah, we're lifers, you and us. That's how it is. We saw it in the, in the, and we were talking to them and they go, 
you guys treated us so good. And we're like, we were just nice to you. We didn't like, we were, but they told us horror stories, even from Biohazard, when they were on it with Biohazard, who weren't that big at the time, but the bass player, the lead singer of Biohazard, treated them like dicks, treated them like shit. And they even said to Biohazard, the guy said, you would have been on the uh, Family Values Tour, but the bass player was a fucking dick. <laughs> So, I mean, we're always nice to everybody because you never know, you know? It's not rocket science either, is it? Exactly. It's like you just sort of treat people how you yourself would hope to be exactly. treated in return. We've had some shit ass. We've never been treated like shit from a band, maybe through their management and the band played it off, but uh, we've had roadies, like guitar techs of metal bands that we've toured with that were fucking absolute assholes to us. And we were just like, there was a, a case on the Slayer tour, this guitar tech, the first night we played, you know, we're going out to Slayer crowd. We're not that heavy. We're not as heavy as Slayer, but we have energy and we have aggression. So me and Pete were all over the place. We were running up on fucking stacks, you know, yeah. running up on the monitors, on the, everything. The next night, we go, we get ready to go on stage, and it's fucking all this red tape everywhere. And he goes like, you can't cross these lines. And Pete was like, fuck that. You can throw me off the tour. And we just did our regular show. And he threw a hissy fit, and he had the manager come and yell at us. And the manager's yelling at us, and I go, I'll fucking go home now. I don't give a shit. You know, we were kids. We were teen, not even teenagers. We were in our 20s. But we were like, I don't give a fuck. You know, we were fine in our world. But Tom Araya asked us to do the tour. Not you. Not the fucking guitar tech. So after that, everything was cool. Like, I guess Tom spoke to the managers like, no, let them do what they want. We asked them for this on this tour for a reason. And it was funny. But I think in protest, the guitar tech almost every night would set up a road case just visible from the crowd and he would lay down on it and pretend to sleep during our set i was like don't give a shit yeah. <laughs> you look like a lazy shit than me yeah fucking hell there's so much politics involved with that oh, side of it in there you know like a band like sepultura took us out how good were they back then as a live band oh fuck yeah i never got to see him in that lineup they were fucking great it was awesome he used to hit so hard he had this bell it was like a you know, like an upside down bell for for the symbols, and it was so thick. He took chips out of it every fucking night. We're like, how the hell do you break that with a wooden <laughs> stick? You know, and uh, but they were one of those bands that, like, I remember, like, three days into the tour, our us and Napalm Death were sharing a bus and sharing a sound man, and our sound was like, man, uh, uh, Sepultura's uh, sound guy keeps coming up in the middle of my sets, like with you guys, especially, and Napalm, he makes me pull it down, pull it down. And then Igor happened to be standing in the door. He goes, oh, really? He goes, do you just do what you want to do tonight? So then we were playing, and I guess we were told later that the Napalm guy sound came up, and the sound man came up, and he was like, turn that shit, not Napalm, uh, Sepultura sound guy came up. He just told him, turn it down, turn it down. And all of a sudden, he gets tapped on the shoulder, and Igor's there. He goes, no, 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 let him fucking do what he wants. Because Igor goes, he said, to, he goes, we're not afraid of anybody. You know, We want to have somebody to make us play better, to up push us. Yeah, and that's something we learned from them. We would find, like, we'd go out with bands, <clears throat> and, like, in the early 90s, there was this new wave of hardcore coming in that was uh, uh, Snapcase, Earth Crisis, and Strife. More metallic, more groove-oriented. You know, they learned from Helmet, and they learned from other shit like that. And they were the bands that people would go off to. And we were like, fuck it, we're taking Snapcase out. And we did, because every night it made us push ourselves that much harder, you know? Have you had a recurring pattern in your career where bands have said, oh, we'd like to take you on tour, but I don't know, man. They're a bit too good. <laughs> We've had a... I don't think we're <laughs> good as in names, songs. <laughs> um, Rancid. Rancid. <laughs> Rancid. They'll, and they'll probably tell you themselves. They didn't say we were too good. They said that they have to work too hard after going after us. And I would look at it and be like, you just had fucking 10,000 people singing every lyric. We were just jumping around like monkeys. And they were like... It's just too much work. Like, you know how <laughs> fucked up that is, man? A couple and, of fat metal bands. I don't remember their name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess there was a story my mate told me the other day. I want to see if you remember this. It was Reading Festival in the 90s. You were on the main <laughs> stage. And yeah, he said, 99. He said, well, in fact, no, before that, we need to talk about the Wall of Death. Um, <laughs> that, that's a sick of it all invention, right? Well, it's is something that, that we did. Something that we did as kids. And I remember doing the first, my first one ever was... Uh, God, it was fucking late 80s. Dead Kennedys were playing in New York City, and they, they used to stack the bill. Dead Kennedys would come in. They would they, Again, another band that wasn't like, oh, we're going to bring this no-name pop-punk band and this. No, they was Dead Kennedys, DOA, Reagan Youth, 
And then another time they came, it was Den Kennedy's, DRI, COC, Youth of Today. They put bands that fucking killed every night. And I remember the, the first one I went to, it was them, DOA, and Reagan Youth that uh, all these kids, like, I mean, we were all in the pit running around like idiots, and these guys start grabbing it, and then one puts his arm around it, and they would just push back. And then all of a sudden, the other side would do the same thing. It was just natural. Nowadays, you got to tell people, do a circle pit. Do yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I yeah. hate that. Yeah, man. I don't want to do that. But if I don't, nobody does nobody it. Nobody does it. Goes, what do I do? Yeah. You know, they're not feeling it anymore. I don't know what it is. Well, they're filming it. They ain't feeling it. Yeah, they're filming exactly. It. But yeah, that's so. Uh, I think fast forward to like 97, we're playing a festival and it was, uh, it was in uh, the first one I did that I remember doing at, uh, it was Offspring. Joe Strummer, Silver Chair, Sick of It All, somewhere in Holland. It was an outdoor festival. So we're on, and I'm watching. Everybody's on stage watching us. We're having a good show. Holland loved us at then. You, know, you mean all the other bands are on stage yeah. watching you? Yeah. So we're having a good time. And then we're going to do Scratch the Surface, and I'm just like, everybody separate. And nobody knew to do this, so the whole place just separated. And I'm talking like a good 3,000 people. And when we started, they cra- it looked like a war. It looked like they got hit with a bomb. Everybody just fell on top of each other. People were twisted in knots, you know. And I was like, "Holy shit! I shouldn't have done that." But the look on everybody's face in the crowd, on the stage, the security—they were just like, "What the fuck?" And it made us look like the greatest band in the world. And I can pinpoint the show where every band stole it from us. Yeah, we did on. it. We did a festival, and on one, it was a, it was a weird festival. It was this huge tent held five thousand people. One end, it was. Slipknot, Sepultura, Papa Roach. Uh, so what's that shitty peak band? Peak of new metal. Yeah. There's another new metal band. I had like one. The guy looked like a little devil playing bass in the video. Mudvayne. 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 There you go. Dig. All those guys. And on the other side, it was Sigvall, Pennywise. Uh, I think L7 was on our side too for some reason. But it was all more punk and hardcore bands. And when we came to do the Wall of Death, everybody from both sides were on stage. And then two nights later... I get it. We, we get a message from a friend of ours, and she was like, yeah, I was just in London, and Papa Roach did your, your Braveheart thing. We used to call it the Braveheart, Braveheart thing. And I was like, motherfucker, and that was it. You know, it was like poof everywhere. That's quite a beautiful thing, though, isn't it? To actually, like, birth something brand new. Yeah. It's incredible. If only, if only I could get royalties. I know, right? Imagine <laughs> every wall of death that occurs in the world, you get a little chip of the... Yeah. That would be some you know, fucking funny, serious a lot of, coin. There was bands, the band uh, Story of the Year. Like a lot of like they became, they were like emo, I guess you'd call it or whatever. They loved my brother. They loved, they, they would imitate my brother the way he plays. And that's another what, Run around in circles. And yes, doing, yeah, jump, yeah, yeah. doing the spinning jump while playing. And he was always like, man, if I could only patent that and yeah. <laughs> make money every time somebody <laughs> does that move. <laughs> so the, the incident I was referring to, my friend said he saw you at Reading one year, right? And I think the main stage bill that day was fairly... Indie, wishy-washy. But, I remember but, it was us but, and uh, Buck Cherry. We f- switched on and off. Like once in Reading, they went on after us, and in Leeds, we went on after them. I remember right on. that. And it, well, my friend said, "See if you remember this." He said that everybody down right at the front of the field was just going crazy and yeah. losing their minds to you guys. And then just behind that chaos was everybody sort of stood there with a picnic or whatever, yeah. like waiting for Stereophonics or whoever it was. And apparently <laughs> you got everyone at the front to turn around to face yeah. the people at the back and instigate the wall of death, but vertically <laughs> yeah, rather than right horizontally back, and yeah. just had them kind of just I charge think... towards the sensible festival goes hanging yeah. in the back. And he said it was one of the funniest things he's ever seen in his life because it was just this look of total shock. <laughs> <laughs> from all these people well, they've just got these fucking animals running towards there's this uh, <laughs> a story like that uh, I think it was two or two years later we were playing in another festival in England and we were just walking through the crowd and this this couple stopped and they oh my god we're so psyched to see you today you know the first time I saw you was at Reading and I was like oh cool cool she goes yeah I was standing there watching you sit next thing I know I'm getting trampled and broke my arm and I was like I just got so fucking scared because in New York, it's, it's like, or in America, it's like, yeah, now I'm going to sue the shit out of you. But they were like, I was like, holy shit, are you okay? He's like, oh, it's fine. It was just insane. And I was like, wow. Thank and then God you got like a fan me. for life. Yeah. Do you feel like the world has become safer and more sanitized and more restricted now with, I mean, sue culture is obviously a big thing in America, but I feel like it's more now the let's call someone out culture. Like they'll film it and yeah. go, oh, that person's been injured and this, this person's well, I mean, look at what happened to the guy from Lamb of God. If you watch the video when he, where was it, the Czech Republic? Yeah, I think whatever. so, yeah. If you watch the video, the bouncer actually throws the kid off the stage. He puts his hand on the kid, open, not even closed, touches the kid's shoulder as he flies off. They took him to court, wanted to throw him, they threw him in jail. 
He did spend time in jail, yeah. It's fucking yeah. crazy. It's like, you look at the video. He didn't do shit. He touched the kid. Like, get off, you know? It's crazy. Does that make you as a performer more and restrained? I don't wanna, yeah, well, no, to... I don't want to see people get hurt. That's when we do the, yeah, yeah. the the wall of death now. It's I mean, especially our crowds all there. They're not really going to hurt each other Yeah, anymore. yeah, yeah. They just bounce off each other. <laughs> I remember a gig. I was, bellies, about, yeah. I was about 13 or 14 years old, and I saw Slipknot in Wolverhampton, and the, the DJ, Sid, with the nose... He mm -hmm. jumped off the balcony and landed on some girl and literally broke her neck. Um, and I was just thinking, like, if that happened in today's world, that would probably end their career instantly. Yeah, right? it could. Like it could. And it's not yeah, necessarily you never saying know. that it's a good thing that that was allowed to happen, yeah. but it's certainly, it's a different world we're living in, isn't it? With but you never know. I mean, there's that, that, not cynical, but, you know, that evil aspect. You could say that, like, oh, now he's famous. You know, like, oh, you do something shitty and people love the shitty guy or the, you know, like, who gets famous at all those stupid reality shows? The person who's an asshole. Yep. And they're the ones who's like gets their 15 minutes of fame while the guy who is nice and good through the whole thing, you know, nice guys finish last. That's what you get, you know? But uh, it's like, you know, nowadays, we're not what we used. We were, you know, when we were teenagers, Nazi show up, show up, bang, right in the crowd, fist fighting. I ain't going to fucking do that now. Just like, yo, get the fuck out of here, right? Come on, grow up, you know? I love the Napalm Death cover, Nazi punks fuck off yeah. last night. Yeah, but you don't really see it, do you? At, at hardcore at metal shows, shows, really? No, it, it depends on where you are. You know, we used to get it at some show, but that was like again in the '90s, and that shit's over. You know, I mean, there is that stuff still around, but they have their own show. shows. They yeah, have their yeah. own shows now, which is really strange to me because, like, we'll play Orange County and have a great fucking show, and then you look in the news, and I'll be like, you know, like two nights later, there was a, oh, a white power show was broken up. And you're like, who the fuck had a white power show? Where <laughs> that still exists? <laughs> Were you guys the first hardcore band to sign a major label deal? Yeah. Yeah. How was that going into that world from where uh, you come from? We got a lot of shit. Yeah. But not, not from the not fan base. A lot. You know, well, we got shit from a certain faction of the fan base, you know, kids who thought, you know, we should do it all yourself and this and that. And we're like, we're fucking guys. And the, the people who gave us the most shit. If you looked into their backgrounds, they came from a nice, comfortable background. I'm not saying my, oh, I had such a rough life. No, I had a great life. You know, my parents provided for us. But when I was fucking 11, my dad was like, get a paper route or get the fuck out of my house. And yeah. I was like, he wouldn't really threw me out. Yeah, you yeah. Know? He just bugged the shit out of you every day. You get a job yet? Nothing, was, job nothing yet? was handed to you. No. But he would be like, you get a job yet? Every fucking day. You go on the weekend, you know. You're your kid. You're like, oh man, weekend, no more school. And the first thing Saturday morning, your dad's like shaking you up. Go out and get a fucking job. You're like, what? <laughs> I want to go a job hunting, dad. I want to go throwing rocks at buildings. Exactly. <laughs> we're, going to be, we're going to the construction site and jump our bikes around and get hurt. And, uh, so you know, you had a paper out, you had this and that. But these other guys, you know, who the people who said that to us most really did come from. And it's as cliche as it is. They came from a wealthier background. Yeah. You know, one of the guys talking shit to us. Him and his sister. You know, he was like 17, 18. They had a house that their parents just gave them because their parents, well, we're moving to Florida. You guys can still live in Jersey to finish school. Here's a house. What the fuck is that? Yeah. But then they're the ones who turn around and go sell out. Yeah. Did you? Because they would have punk parties and let their friends live there. Oh, that's nice. Good. Can I move in? If you can, can I live rent free, that, motherfucker? Yeah. No. I was chatting to Laura Jane Grace about it all, and she got so much shit when Against Me signed to Fat Records, not even a major yes, label. Yes, I remember that when, when Against Me signed. And everyone was like, sell like, out, and they're like, what is Fat Records? Like, it's an independent punk ran record no, label. You're not, you're not gluing your fucking you know, albums together, so... How did you find it from the actual business side of things? How did the, the industry people treat you guys? They, you know, at that time, it was right before New Metal broke. So they were like, oh, Harco's going to be the next thing. Because we were in New York, you know, and they would go, and it was funny. We did an Amnesty International benefit. And I think this is what sold them. Uh, the the A&R guy said he's been watching us for two years. I don't know if that was true. But we did this Amnesty International benefit, and we did 3,000 people in New York City and right across the, the, the street at the Roseland, which holds 5,000, there was this huge metal show, and there was only 1,500 people there. But that was hardcore. was big in New York at that time. Yeah. So they signed us off the base of that and our work ethic. They loved that we went out on tour and busted our ass and shit like that. You know? And we'd play with anybody. We'd play fucking ska band, the Boss Tones, ask us, you know, well, all right, we'll do shows with you. You know, we didn't care. We didn't care if their plaid fans just stared at us and, you know, didn't know what the fuck was going on. A show's a show, right? Yeah. It's, it's only going to make you grow as a performer. You're going to get something from it uh, in terms of, like, a lesson, right? Yeah. And, a and a lot of stuff, like, uh, we would play with uh, punk bands. Like, we went out, we took the Unseen out with us. 
and their audience was and this is what made me uh kind of turned off of punk right. and because and even you can even see if you go through the sick of it all the timeline there's a point where we start looking like just regular guys from queens you know we look like we look like guidos we used to call them because we got so turned off of the punk ethic and the straight edge ethic of like oh you gotta wear champion and have fucking air jordans i'm like who the fuck can afford air jordans i can't you know and then the punk kids like oh you don't have a studded leather jacket and a mohawk but when we took out uh, unseen, they loved us just for music, and we loved their music. But so their fans wouldn't give us a chance. And every night, it happened because you be, didn't look the punk. They would be standing at the back of the bar, like watching us. I go, "It's all right to like us. I know I don't look punk, you know, but I'm more punk than you." I go, I pointed Craig. Go, this guy gets drunk with Wadi, and everybody would laugh, you know. And it would be, you know. But one of the best things in that tour was in Chicago. At the end of the tour, our, our merch uh, person goes. Yeah, at the end of your set, this kid went up to the little boy with a mohawk, went up to the young teen, he goes, can I get my money back? I want a sick of it all shirt. Sorry. That's amazing. Incredible. <laughs> and I'm assuming he gave the trade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. The singer's girlfriend, they're like, oh, yeah, you stole one of our fans. I was like. <laughs> um, what else did I want to chat to you about? Toby Morse. <laughs> Do we have to? No. What's, the, what's the story there? How long did he work with you guys? Uh, Toby was a friend of ours who lived in a house with some of the guys from Gorilla Biscuits and some other people. He actually lived in the closet. In the, Literally. Because he couldn't amazing. afford it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so he started working for us. We took him out as a roadie. We, we did this thing. It was funny. The first big tour we did on our own was in 93. And we, we jokingly called it the, uh, the you know, urban retreat thing or whatever. We took, we took our friends who never left New York City. You know, Toby was from Maryland, but he, we took him. We took this guy, Isaac, who sang for Crown of Thorns. And now he does his own uh, hip hop thing. And uh, we didn't take them because they were good roadies. We took them because it was funny. Uh, Just to show them yeah. something other than their Toby own Toby had to be one of the worst, worst roadies ever. He <laughs> tried. He busted his ass, but he had to be one of the worst. We would be on tour, and I remember, especially in Europe, you'd be like, all right, you guys break shit down. We're going to go. We changed, and then we'd go. They'd be like, yeah, the whole van's packed. We're going to go hang out with the kids. And Toby and our other roadies would go run out. And Toby was in charge of the drums. And me and Armand would be walking out, and they'd go, Armand, is that your your hi-hat stand still all together, the only thing on the stage? And he's like, yeah, that's why, how would you miss that? So we'd all get in the in the van and we'd sit there and Toby come in, you got everything, Toby? Yeah, put it all away. You sure? Yeah, I got everything. And all goes, why don't you go in and look at the stage? He goes, well, what do you mean? And we're like, just go look on the stage. He'd go inside and he'd come back, oh man, I'm fucking sorry, man. And every time he would leave, he'd lose snare drums. How do you fucking lose a snare drum? <laughs> he would just leave it somewhere. Because he was like all scatterbrained and shit. So after a couple of tours, we we started doing this joke where, you know, Pete came with this weird riff. It was like a, a dr- droney, we called it emo then. I don't know what it is. And it would do a little droney. It's more like a Fugazi, like droney, but heavy. And then it would go into a big noisy part. And Toby just made up these lyrics. And, we, and this is before he had a band. And... We would say, yeah, this is our, our roadie Toby's got a new band. And he came up with the name. He goes, yeah, it's my band H2O because water is the purest thing you put in your body. And he was all, you know, just a joke. And people fucking loved it. Now, H2O sounds nothing like the song we had written for him. It was just a joke. But then we had to fire him. We were like, dude, you're the worst roadie. You're gone. <laughs> and he got kind of depressed. But then Pete goes, look, I got these three songs or five songs that don't really fit sick of it all. Uh I want to give them to you. Get your friend Rusty, who's a great guitar player. He says, tell your hippie brother to cut his hair because his brother's in a band. Uh, I forget what the name of the band was, but we had played with them. They were good. They were more, you know, like more like DC kind of sounding, uh, you know, like Marginal Man kind of yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so Pete kind of basically put H2O together with, with Toby, and he gave him five songs. One of them is their biggest hit, Five Year Plan. And I was pissed because when Pete played us that song, I, I turned everybody go, that's a fucking great song. And all mine and Craig are like, that's not us. <laughs> but I mean, with Toby's lyrics, it came out great. But yeah, so that's the fact that a lot of people don't know is that Pete actually built H2O. <laughs> that's incredible. And I think he's just about to launch or has just launched his own podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's talking about... I, mean, I hope talking... he asks me on because I'm going I'm to pull, pull that card and be like, how come you never tell anybody my brother made your band, you know? <laughs> well, they he's... owe my brother royalties for that song. Season one of his podcast, he has named the five-year plan as well. 
Oh, <laughs> more rights in there. And then did you ever take H2O out on tour and did you see him you complete know, the evolution from shit roadie to, you know, decent front man? <laughs> he was a lot of, as a roadie though, we did came around because he was funny. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, he would fucking do and some good, good cra- energy. We did some crazy shit that he doesn't want us talking about because... <laughs> You know, when you're a kid, you do wild shit. Yeah, know? yeah, and, yeah. And he goes and he speaks to children, so I don't think it'd be good if that came in. It's nothing weird, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, nothing yeah. like sexual, but it's, it's just, just not in line with... It's just not, yeah. I'm sure the kids would laugh and think, but Mr. T- Mr. Morris, why would you do that? You know? <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's funny. One of the first tours, we took them out to Europe before they had a record, before they had anything. It was just, they had like 20 minutes worth of music, maybe. But uh, it took... Uh, uh, Civ, which was the you know the, the the band after Gorilla Biscuits, we took them and we took H two O, you know, and that was a great tour. And it, that you know gave H two O a foothold in Europe and that like nobody else had because that was sick of it all at their prime, the biggest we were in Europe. And we were like, hey, look at this band that nobody knows. People were like, holy shit, who are you guys? You know, because it was hardcore but it had melody. You know, where are your favorite parts in the world to still go and visit and play? As and far where have as you got the kind of stronghold still firmly in place. Germany loves us. Belgium, yeah. Holland. Uh, we still do great. We we do good everywhere, but it's weird. Like Japan, I fucking love Japan. But the promoters are so. They, Japanese people are very. They have this weird like. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say strict. What is it like? Like they compartmentalize everything, and it's like yeah, yeah, hardcore yeah. is not popular anymore. Therefore, sick of it all is not popular anymore. But then we'll go and we'll play a random festival. We did this one festival. It was a punk festival again. Only hardcore band on the festival. All ska and punk. Snuff is fucking headlining. Place is packed. We play right before Snuff. Half the crowd fucking walks out after us. And we look at the promoters. We go like, "You see that shit?" And they're like, "Oh yeah." And then you call them up six months later. We want to do a tour. Oh, hardcore's not big. Well, fuck you. You know, we still do great there. But I love South America. People are so passionate, and Southeast Asia. You know? But I mean, we were surprised last night in London. You know, seriously. I mean, we always have great shows here, but it was way too big a venue. We thought we did pretty well filling it up, and seriously, it was the best reaction of the tour. Really? Every other night on a Sunday in London, you exactly. got to be happy with that. Uh, every other night, it was like we'd come out gangbusters, and they didn't wake up because they were dead. They were standing there for eight hours watching bands. Some nights there were extra bands on the bill. You know, it was, it was already what a, a eight band bill or whatever it was, and they would be dead tired till like the second segue. You know, so we start the second segue, and also, oh yeah, sick of it all is the headliner. Oh, you know, and it's disheartening when you get out there. You watch every band, like Walls Jerk walks out, they cheer like it's fucking, you know, Aerosmith coming out. You know, Municipal Waste goes on, the place is screaming like it's fucking Slayer. And they say, welcome, it's like, because <sighs> they're dead tired by yeah. that time. But last night, we were like, holy shit, they, you know, everybody was ready. It they was reached deep inside the tank and fucking <laughs> pulled out the adrenaline. Is record writing and making and releasing still a focus for you guys as a band and do you think it will continue we to be just take our time i mean we, we're still in that mindset of like well we can't do a tour we, we tour like two years off of an album and i think in between the last two is almost four we do that a lot now it used to be two years between records now we just take our time because we're, we're the industry's changed so much hasn't yeah it? exactly i mean that's we're, we're stuck in that mindset of like well we can't if it's been like two years like well we we have to put a new album out you know, we can't go out without a new album. And there are even uh, promoters that tell us that, like, oh, you got to have a new product. Like, why? You know, yeah, yeah, people, yeah. Half these people just had, don't even know that we have anything past 1989. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, like with this last album, we were just like, we just had shit to say and shit yeah. to, and, and to write. And uh, we did it smart, though. We gave ourselves, everybody go home for three weeks and write. And then we got together for three weeks and banged out the album, but we did it with our producer in his recording studio. We usually just go in our studio and we have like a digital recorder set up in the middle so that we can, after we do that, we all go home and listen to it. And it's just noise. All you hear is cymbals anyway. <laughs> you know, once in a while, a little guitar riff because it's so fucking noisy. <laughs> but we did it this way in his studio. And then we had, a th- after those three weeks, we had the songs written. And then me and him sat for about a week and a half just working on vocal melodies like all mine would be like i really want this more melodic instead of me just going full because me i get it i'm like oh it's like well i gotta scream full throttle and it, it really worked that we sat down and worked on the vocal lines and everything instead of just being you know 
And we were like, wait a minute, we're in our fucking 50s and we're still writing like we were in our 20s? Why would we do that? You know? <laughs> so it's a wake-up call within yourselves. You're yeah. like, oh, we can do it differently. Yeah, with that song, Bull's <laughs> Anthem, it's like, when Armine brought it to us, like, this is not us. This is so, like, leaning towards Dropkick Murphys that it's almost Dropkick Murphys. And he was like, well, you know, I wanted you know, a big anthem. And he wrote a big, like, sports anthem. I think it's too high energy for, like, a sports event, you know? But it's it fucking kills. Every night we've done it, people just go nuts. Do you do well in the advertising or film world? Have you ever had any tracks used in any of those areas? No. Because they must what? be good paydays, right? I guess, I think it was more in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. And then, especially video games. And right when we were getting, uh, we were being uh, talked to by uh, Grand Theft Auto. I think it was number five. They, right. they did yeah. it in the 80s. And they had a New York hardcore station. And... Right then, we were like, we're going to fucking get paid. Get They were like, well, let's see. Album sales are this. Video game sales are about 100 times more than that. So how about we give you a 1000 bucks and call it a day? Instead of like before that, it was like, we'll give you $10,000 for your song, and you'll get royalties on every time, you know, on the game sales. Now there's like, you know, hey, we outsell albums by leaps and bounds, so tough shit. So they just give you one payout, and then yeah. that's... But at movies, we've never been asked, and... We, and we were mad at our managers because decades ago, like I think it was three years before the Machete movies came out, we have a song called Machete, and it's based on a Mexican folklore that Armine read, and it's about a guy coming to lead the people, you know, and he had a machete. And this that, is that's fucking perfect. And it's right, it should have been a movie. I called my manager, I called our lawyer, said, you got to get in touch with Robert Rodriguez, he's got this movie out coming out called Machete, he's working on it now, we got to send him the song, I, even if he doesn't fucking like it, you got to try, yeah, yeah, we'll try, nobody tried, I don't think Robert Rodriguez ever heard the fucking song, he's got two down, I think he's doing another one, or is it three, I don't know how many he did, that would have been perfect. That would have been fucking perfect. Yeah. Even if you just put it at the end credits, it scares the shit out of people. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're great movies as well. And then, well, I guess once you get uh, you know a song in one kind of a iconic cult, yeah, I mean look at, look at White like Zombie. That. You know the, how many times has that song uh, was it something sixty nine or whatever? Thunder fuck, Kiss, Thunder Kiss, yeah. yeah, that fucking song. I used to work in the mailroom for their management, and those guys. I would be in the in, in the office flirting with the secretary, and. And she would get a call, and it would be the, somebody from White Zombie and Row, and they're like, nobody gives a shit. Why the fuck are we doing this? It's been, the record's been out for a year. And she'd be like, you just got to stick it out. You got to stick it out. And then that song got picked up by some movie, and then another movie used it. Like, Beavis and Butthead, I think. Exactly. That was the yeah. big thing, yeah. And Beavis and Butthead worked for a lot. Like, they made Biohazard overnight. And they, then, were, they were the tastemakers of their yeah. day, weren't they? We, got, we were on Beavis and Butthead. It didn't do shit for us. Really? Except people that, hey, I saw your song on Beavis and Butthead. Did you go buy a record? No. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Uh, White Zombie, let's, let's kind of finish there because they were, well, not finish there, but I want to touch on them quickly. They were obviously around at the same time. Yeah. I um, saw some good, again, going back to those crazy bills. Uh, I'm not going to say it was Carnivore. I think it was Typo Negative Leeway, who were a huge influential band in New York and outside of New York. They were ahead of their time. And then White Zombie opening up, and I would go see those shows and be like, "Yeah, White Zombie was noise, but it had a groove. You know, it wasn't super fast, which what we love, but they had such a and Rob, he's showman, you know, good frontman. I'd be like, wow, this guy in crazy fucking moves and treads and fucking frilled jacket going all wild. You know, for guys from the hardcore scene, you're just like something different. Remind you, like, oh man, I used to go see Ozzy. He wore that frilly shit too. It was cool. You know. Do you ever get to tour with Ozzy? No, 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 no. I used to go see him all the time as a kid. I saw a Blizzard of Oz with Motorhead opening up, you know, and fucking the Palladium, which was a 1,500-seater. You know, shit like that. It was amazing to us. I, I, I imagine you would have got to play with Motorhead quite a bit. Uh, just in festivals, right? yeah, yeah, but yeah. never. And Lemmy was always cool with us, you know. And it was funny, when we were, like, 16, went to see Motorhead, and we waited behind the club. And, you know, this is when uh, Robbo took over right after Fast Eddie. It was another perfect day tour and, like, fucking, you know, he comes out, he signed my 7-inch, went right to the bus. Filthy came out, told a couple of jokes, and went right to the bus. Lemmy comes out, hung out with us for like 30, 40, maybe an hour, just bullshitting with kids. We're fucking teenagers. He's not on the bus. Everybody's partying on the bus. He's laughing with us, making fun of us, you know. And then he just thanked us and went on the bus. It was great. And then we'd see him at festivals. And I remember my brother Pete was in California at this. We used to work for this thing called Concrete Marketing. They marketed metal and all that shit. And he went to their convention. And 
somebody, Lemmy was there, and he said, oh, can you take a picture of uh, my friend Pete? He's from a band called Sick of It All. He goes, Sick of It All, eh? I can tell by your look you must be brilliant. And Pete laughed. He goes, oh, thanks. I've only been a fan of yours my whole life. He goes, oh, I'm, you know. He's like, just fucking with him. So. <laughs> but it was cool. He's the pilot of rock and roll, isn't he? Sorely missed. And it's like everybody says. He's the guy who, like, yeah, punk fans, metal fans, rock and roll fans, and everybody loved it because his voice spoke to hardcore and punk people, but the music was rock and roll, pure rock and roll. I have a funny story, too. I was wearing a Motorhead hat about two years ago, and I stopped in a Starbucks uh, in New Jersey somewhere, right off the highway, just random, this rich rich neighborhood. I just pull up, oh, Starbucks, I went over, and I'm sitting in there waiting in line, and this old man goes, Motorhead, huh? Great band. Shame about that guy's voice. I went, what? He goes, yeah, I used to do A&R for A&M Records, and we signed him, but his voice. I go, are you out of your mind, man? That was That's what made the band. And he was like, nah, they had good songs, but his voice. It was just an old record executive guy. And I was like, wow, this guy signed Motorhead, but he hated him? What a dick. <laughs> um, Lou, thanks so much for a great chat, dude. Oh, um, thank you. A pleasure. It was so good to see you last night as well. Thanks. Any plans in the diary as to um, the rest of the year and anything you can tell us? Just touring, Tour-wise. man. We're doing some US dates, and then we're coming back to Europe for... A bunch of shows. We're doing uh, like a run through France, Spain, and Italy. Uh, Spain, we're doing with Good Riddance, our friends from California. Just stuff like that. We'll, we'll be around. We'll be around. It's, uh, I don't know why uh, we don't play the UK enough. You know, we love it here. Since we got rid of our UK booking agent, well, she retired. And, you know, we have a German booking agent. So, you know. So they want to put you in mainland <laughs> Europe. Well, exactly, yeah. Got to get yourselves a UK one. Yeah. Get over here more. That's what we're going to do. If last night's anything to go by, the people obviously want it. So yeah, it was good. Make it happen. Uh, well, All right, mate. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.